Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Gabriela Santos with us with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. She would only appear on Bloomberg Surveillance with a Dow of 21,000 <laughs> or higher. What, what do you tell people when you say they go 21,000? I never imagined it. How do you frame that for sophisticates and those like me less sophisticated? <laughs> We would say that less important than looking at the index level is actually looking at the underlying earnings for companies, which is exactly what's led us uh, to these higher index levels, is the fact that U.S. companies are making, again, uh, an incredible amount of profits every single quarter. That's really the most important piece here rather than a particular index level. When it comes to volatility, what did we learn last week when we had that Spike, or at least that yeah, tick, and, uh, tick and up nine point nine point nine four of the yeah, VIX exactly, right now. Exactly. Wow! Uh, what did we learn last week from that? When I think about the VIX and I think about volatility in the market, um, there is the volatility in terms of headlines, mm. right? And those certainly we have plenty of, both in the U.S. and around the world. But also, if we think about economic volatility. That's really decreased over the past year or so. A lot of the risks that have been threatening the global economy have receded from plunging commodity prices to a Chinese hard landing to uncontrolled currencies. And that's what is keeping volatility low, I think, is the removal of a lot of those economic uncertainties. How do you look at, at Europe playing off of that a little bit? We have the political story. We've been following that for, for many months now. And then there's the economic story. Mm -hmm. Do you cleave both of them? Do you look at them uh, in concert with each other? How do, you, how do you look at the European market economy right now? We place much greater weight on the actual economic story. And that's been positive for quite a while now in Europe. Uh, we saw some very good growth out of Europe in the first quarter, 2%. Um, growth that's being driven by a rebound in consumption as well as investment. Uh, and growth that's very diversified by country. And that's very, very encouraging in terms of, of its sustainability. When, when you look at... at Opportunity overseas uh, and emerging markets are at, at the Eurozone. Where do you see the, the greatest opportunity at this point? So we see in exactly both of those regions okay. you yeah. mentioned. Broadly uh, speaking. So the Eurozone specifically yeah. speaking. And, and when we think about companies, we want companies that are able to access that domestic story mm. in Europe. So companies that can tap into that rebound in the European consumer, for example. And we also look at emerging markets and say – with so many, so much stability in these external variables, China, commodities, currencies, that's actually a good environment for growth to, to continue improving in EM. Within this is the feeling that it's the greatest bull market since time began. <laughs> and, and people say it's unloved. Is it really? I mean, you're out in the trenches. What do you hear from institutional people desperate to make the benchmark? And what do you hear from high net 
high net worth people, you know, they're in cash, they're scared stuff. What do I do with the next $3 million? Not that we have that problem, <laughs> but what's the mood out there? It has been incredibly unloved. Uh, and whenever, It's still unloved. I think it still is. Like Lizanne Saunders, Dave, uh, David, is adamant about this. It's <laughs> over Schwab. It's still totally unloved. And, and we feel that when we're on the road speaking to clients, both of the institutional and the individual variety. Our job for the past few years has been talking people off the brink, thinking that the U.S. is about to go into a recession, companies will never make enough money again. And, and that's what I think has made it very unloved, is, is this distrust of economic and earnings data. Um, perhaps that's starting to shift uh, as we're starting to see some fading of those concerns. But we still see a lot of special, especially individual investors that are still very heavy on cash and fixed yeah. income. Is dividend growth still work? We've got 20 seconds. I mean, it's the theme, it's the theme du jour. It's the theme of our seconds. lifetime. Is dividend growth still the religion? Well, you have to think about sustainable dividend growth and whether uh, you also have earnings growth that's associated with that. So it's not just purely chasing dividends in utilities and telecom. It's chasing companies that are able to grow their dividends and their earnings. We want to give us a name or two just so we can you know, try to – you know, someday we can speak to those JP three million Morgan. that you have. Yeah. In, in terms of sectors, I would think about financials as actually a great oh, dividend okay. and earnings play. A reason to have Gabriela Santos back. We didn't cover financials. How about that? She is with JP Morgan. With our question, our interview of the day was on China on the misinformation, the myths, and the reality, as we can perceive it, of their financial system. This was Donald Strasheim. We did this on Bloomberg Television earlier, and we are thrilled to go further now on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura, it was just great on that new fragility and mystery of what they're doing. Yeah, thanks for, for sticking around. Let me ask you, first of all, what we know about China's debt picture. We saw the news of the downgrade yesterday. China now at its at Moody's fifth highest investment grade ticked down a notch. What do we know about the debt picture? There's all of this shadow banking. How much of it is still a mystery? A lot of it's still a mystery. Yeah. Um, there is uh, a, a mystery in terms, I think, of actual uh, levels. There is a mystery of whether there is a uh, mismatch uh, of maturities of all these various paper. How much... Um, uh, how much of long-term projects are being financed with uh, short-term money? Uh, this is inherently a problem to be to to be avoided. Are and, we are we seeing defaults? Are we beginning to see more defaults in in China? Not materially. Mm. That's one of the problems. I think, quite frankly, um, you need to have. Uh, um, I don't. I hesitate to use the term, but an honest mm. system. And failures are part of the uh, process. And what we see, rather, is um, loans that are clearly non-performing get evergreened and they, roll, they get rolled over again and again. And bonds that are financing some 4,000-seat opera house uh, in some middle-sized city that there's just not 4,000 people to go there every Friday and Saturday night for the next uh, decade. And these get uh, rolled over and over. And when, when that kind of thing happens, uh, it just creates uncertainty and doubt, and it's a bad thing, not a good one. How do you dovetail this, the, the conversation about China's debt, with what the Chinese president unveiled at that forum a few weeks, 
uh, back. We saw the, the meeting at the state guest house with, uh, with Vladimir Putin and all of that. Uh, how does that complicate the debt picture, the, the ambitious plans of creating this new Silk Road? Uh, actually, uh, I don't think it uh, really does complicate it. Uh, uh, anything that happens in this so-called uh, new Silk Road, one belt, one road yep. uh, uh, project is going to be uh, agreement among um, kind of consenting adults. And so China's going to have a deal with country X in this, or maybe a multilateral uh, deal on some infrastructure project or um, whatever it happens to be. Um, unless all parties agree to this, uh, it's not going to happen. So we don't really know the scope of this project yet, and we won't. Uh, and it'll be a constantly moving target. Given how important debt has been to fueling the, the Chinese economy, what, what will the Chinese president do? What options are available to him? Uh, in terms of, would he scale back the reliance on debt? Is that even a, a possibility, or does he have to keep counting on it to, to maintain the level of growth we've all become accustomed to there? He, he has to continue. Um, they, they are reliant on debt. They're addicted to debt. Yeah. He has to continue that. He can't, yeah. do, he can't reduce it in any kind of... Uh, uh, precipitous way, but their growth rate is going to come down, and it's going to come down a long ways over the next decade. And it is a myth to think the new normal, just to use a Bill Gross term yes. from right. two years ago, the new normal is not any number. Well, it's a lower number every year. I see. I want to go back to, and I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, sir. The Guangzhou Opera House is Guangzhou on the Pearl River, right? Yes. So they build an opera house. Maybe it's that one. Maybe yeah, okay, it's one right. of uh -huh. sure. ten others. And they have debt for that. Who holds that debt? The banks. Who, the 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 state owned banks. The the state own they issue bonds to build an opera house. I, I assume the government issues mm -hmm. the bonds. Mm -hmm. Who owns them? The banks. The banks. Not like a mutual fund it's, company. Yeah, it's, um, this is not usually owned by guys like you and me over there. Are their banks solvent if they own Guangzhou Opera House bonds? <laughs> they are. They are solvent so long as the uh, lender of last resort is uh, prepared to make them solvent. So can, this and is so, my key question. I, I don't have time, but do, <laughs> do they have the cash to be lender of last resort? The answer is they do. The answer is they do. What are they waiting they, for? They, well, what's the hurry? <laughs> Okay. Well, the hurry um, may be the international markets. Uh, no, no, no. Okay. The, 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 whole, the whole issue, I think, is okay. that uh, they control both the okay. asset side and the liability side of their own balance okay. sheet. Don, we got to go. We'll play Posito Domingo here to get us out. <laughs> Don Strasheim on Chinese opera houses. This is Bloomberg. We promised this a few minutes ago. Eager to have uh, Zeke Emanuel joining us now. I could spend five minutes reading all of his various professional titles. I'm just going to say here he's the Vice Provost for Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress. We'll flag his new book as well, forthcoming uh, here, I think, in early June, the book called Prescription for the Future, the 12 Transformational Practices of Highly Effective Medical Organizations. Zeke, let's start with that CBO score, highly anticipated, uh, another iteration of scoring on this on this bill, the American Health Care Act. What did you take away from what the CBO had to say yesterday? Well, basically, it's the same as before, and it shows you that uh, the MacArthur effort to, quote-unquote, soften the uh, House's Affordable uh, uh, American Health Care Act did almost nothing. Uh, it spent a bunch of billions of dollars and had 
uh, negligible impact, uh, even on the number of uninsured or on the total cost of health care uh, for uh, Americans who would buy insurance. Uh, you have 23 million people going to be thrown off of insurance. Uh, the uninsured rate's going to go over 50 million Americans by 2026. Um, I think, you know, uh, I've used this word before to describe the American Health Care Act. It's cruel. I don't, I, I find it hard to analyze it any other way. It throws 23 million people uh, off of coverage. Uh, it raises insurance premiums, especially for people who have illnesses, uh, and it gives a big tax break to uh, uh, health care corporations and the rich. Um, this does not sound like the kind of plan most Americans want. Uh, it seems very, very uh, cruel. Uh, we had Michael Cannon on, your friend Michael Cannon from the Cato Institute, just a, a few minutes ago, and uh, he was talking about, yes, this particular piece of legislation, but also what he thinks is wrong with, with the Affordable Care Act, and he places blame squarely on the, the regulations imposed by that law. I just want to get your response to that. When you, when you look at these insurance companies pulling out of marketplaces in places like Kansas City or Iowa or Virginia, uh, how much of that is attributable fairly to, to, to what's called for by the Affordable Care Act? Well, a lot of it's attributable to, uh, I would say, you, let, let's put it this way. You could easily stabilize all the insurance markets. And you should remember the Congressional Budget Office said they're here to stay. They're not going away. You could easily stabilize them by enforcing the mandate uh, strongly and telling, reminding people they have to buy insurance. That will get some people to buy insurance. Second of all, those cost-sharing subsidies that the Republicans keep threatening or at least making uncertain – means that insurance companies don't know whether to bank on them or not, and so are raising right. rates and are or, or withdrawing. And the third thing uh, you could do is the reinsurance, which, remember, Marco Rubio pulled out of the Affordable Care Act, was solidly in the Affordable Care Act, and he changed the rules halfway through the game. Do those three things, and there are some other okay. things you can do, better targeted advertising. And those marketplaces are stable, Good. and actually the rates come down. So I agree that we could do more with Cannon, but that's not to say you throw the whole thing out. That talks about well, reform, not repeal. He is scathing, and we got a huge response against Mr. Cannon. Thank you, all of you, for emailing uh, in, particularly Matt in London. Zeke Emanuel, the first thing you said is the distinction of do a mandate so everybody's covered. That seems to be the not Democrat, not Republican, but the libertarian complaint. What is your study and analysis of the outcome of mandating everybody to do this? What happens? <laughs> well, the, Amer the public doesn't like, I mean, and I'll be honest, the polling suggests that it is the single part of the Affordable Care Act, which the public doesn't like. Thank you. A mandate. You cannot, but the public has to be educated. And again, I would say that we Democrats did not do a good job of educating them to say, look, you want no pre-existing condition exclusions. You want everyone to be able to get insurance at a reasonable rate. You have to have a mandate or you have to have some Why can't we do yes. that? Where's the courage? <laughs> well, Where's the will to say right. this is what we believe in? If you don't like it, this is the outcome. Yes, I think, I think we have to do a better job of explaining that. But I would say, so from my standpoint, if we don't like the mandate, the only alternative to really getting a stable market with pre-existing disease exclusions is we're going to auto-enroll everyone into an insurance package. Everyone gets it by default of being an American. 
Uh, we do that with Medicare Part okay. A. We basically do that with Social Security. I think that's, a, okay. that's the alternative. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to come back. David Gurra just wrote down that smart response from Dr. Emanuel. This is a raging debate. What we're trying to do with surveillance, folks, is give you many conversations on this so you can decide. We hope we're accomplishing that. With us right now, Dr. Emanuel. I've got a sore elbow. Maybe you can help me with it later. Zeke Emanuel, the new book will be Prescription for the Future. Uh, David Gura has unleashed Dr. Emanuel, one of the most important photographs in the history and courage of American medicine. 1847, the Massachusetts General Hospital, Southworths and Hawes, early operation using ether for anesthesia. That is a spiritual place in America, that dome at MGH. And the photograph, I'll put it out on Twitter, folks. The photograph's extraordinary. Yeah, I, think it's 18, I think it's 1846, John Warren did the surgery. Yes. Uh, and he was the nephew of one of the great American, unknown American revolutionary heroes, Joseph Warren, who was a physician in yes. Boston and a leader of the Boston Revolutionary Group. And I know great this photo. I know this from Joseph Warren and Johnny Tremaine, which I read when I was ten years old. Yeah. Zeke Emanuel, <laughs> here's the emotion that everybody faces. If we go to a socialized medicine further on than Obamacare, where everyone's covered, we will lose our technical and research excellence. Will we lose our worldwide excellence in medicine if we go to where everyone's covered? Oh, absolutely not. Just quite the contrary. Uh, what you see uh, once you do cover everyone is you see a focus on trying to dramatically improve the quality and lower the cost of health care, and that yields a lot of innovation. One of the things I like to say to investors is in the seven years, in the five years immediately after passage of the Affordable Care Act, uh, venture funding in health care increased 32 percent compared to the five years before. Um, there are a lot of talented people coming into healthcare because they see a lot of ways to innovate in the delivery of care, making it much more efficient, uh, making it uh, much better for patients. So I think quite the contrary. You're going to see a huge flood, actually, uh, with, uh, if we continue with the Affordable Care Act and universal coverage, of innovation. Uh, in lots of places, we haven't seen innovation before, um, and that's very important. Do not think of innovation in healthcare as just a new pill or a new medicine. There are going to be innovative processes of care, innovative ways of trying to get patients to be more adherent to their uh, treatments and to lifestyle changes, and those are all serious and very vital innovations for improving our health, which is the ultimate uh, outcome measure. Definitely want to talk a bit about that uh, in just a minute here, but let me put a question to you that I put to Michael Cannon a few moments ago. That is, if, if you have a lot of these companies pulling out of marketplaces, do you think that that turns sentiment against those companies and makes makes Americans more willing to consider uh, a, a, a single-payer system or a government-run health care plan. Michael Cannon, I don't mean to have you guys debate by proxy. His response to that was he thinks that there are those in, in, in Republican circles in particular who think that that was the plan all along, that this was going to maim or handicap the insurance industry so much that we were going to get that uh, universal coverage. I'll let you respond to that if you'd like, but I just wonder what you, what you think sure. that means for sentiment. First of all, I think that's a uh, ludicrous uh, analysis. If you actually look what happened after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, uh, the insurance company uh, number of members went up, their revenues went up, and their stock prices went up. Everyone thought this was a great bill for insurance companies, uh, not the reverse, that it was a covert method to blow up insurance companies. Remember, 
the problem here for the exchanges has not been the Affordable Care Act. It's been the Republicans pulling away the reinsurance and saying, well, we're not going to fund the cost-sharing subsidies. That's what's thrown the insurance market into a tailspin. So it was not a covert way to get uh, single-payer uh, at all. And there are many people who worked on it, myself included, who were not did not think single player was something we're going to get in the United States or maybe even the most desirable way of delivering health care for a variety of reasons. So I think that's an absurd uh, conspiracy theory, uh, fake news uh, story. Uh, I look at your book here. Uh, again, out on uh, June the 6th, so we have a preview you copy. But but one of them here, a chapter here, is how to pick your doctor. And I think that's something a lot of people wrestle with in this conversation about yeah. uh, where medicine is going, how it's being transformed. Has the, the notion of how you pick a physician changed? Yes, I do think uh, we have better ways of trying to pick a physician. The first thing you want is a physician who's focused in, uh, in arranging their office on patients, not on making their schedule better. So one of the things you want to ask is, do they have something called open access scheduling? That is, they have open spots in the day, so if something comes up or you happen to have free time, you can actually see the doctor when you want, not when the doctor wants. The second thing that's really important is you want a doctor who's monitoring their quality. So you want someone who's evaluating on an ongoing basis their performance. I recommend in the book you want a uh, doctor who's got a patient-centered medical home. Um, that's not the only way they could evaluate it, but it is one way many doctors do. I think those are probably the two best criteria. Um, I would say you know, I'm sort of, as the chapter suggests, I'm against concierge medicine, and I'm against just relying on word of mouth. Those tend not to be, or, or the, your uh, local uh, magazines, uh, you know, 50 best doctors in the Washington, D.C. area or wherever yeah. they happen to be. Those tend not to be um, driven by right. uh, uh, any data. Let me ask you the same question I asked Michael Cannon. We had Missouri, Kansas City, Blue Cross, whatever, drop out of these programs yesterday. Michael Cannon, of course, mentions Tennessee. You know all these, Zeke. You know which zip codes are involved, yeah. et cetera. Where's the tip point? Where's the point where, you know, not that they're going to protest in front of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, whoever's in the White House, but where's the tip point is insurance companies just say, this isn't working. Yeah, no, I, I think the tipping point is going to be the uh, 2018 and 2020 elections, if you want to know the truth. Uh, I think uh, if I were Mr. Uh, uh, MacArthur in New Jersey, I'd be nervous. Uh, and I think a lot of uh, moderate Republicans uh, are nervous. Unfortunately, given the gerrymandering, the people who voted for it are, are going to be you know, immune. But I think the Republicans are going to take, uh, you know, this is an election issue. And people have, you know, taking away uh, guaranteed insurance and guaranteed no pre-existing conditions. People are very upset about that, and I think you are going to see uh, people pay the price. And then we're going to get back to, all right, how do we stabilize the market? What are the reforms we need? And again, I'm I'm honest. Right. We've had you know seven, seven years. We need reforms. It's not like the Affordable Care Act is working perfectly. But reform is not throw everything out, throw twenty three million. Okay, okay, but but you you hit the heart. You built this thing. It's your fault. So <laughs> Zeke, if it's your fault, what does Chuck Schumer need to do? Because quote unquote, it's not working perfectly. Right. Well, I, I told you to. There are many things to do. So first, stabilizing the insurance market. I gave you the three most important right. things to Thank do. Thank you. Uh, there's a lot of cost control things that we can do. 
quickly change how we pay doctors and hospitals so it's off fee-for-service and it's on what are called alternative payment models. Give them one bundle or give them a set amount of money to take care of uh, a patient, what's called capitation. Uh, Make all the uh, insurance companies that are contracting with the government, whether through the exchanges of the Federal Employee Health Benefit Plan or TRICARE, make them also go to alternative payment models. This is the best way of focusing them on keeping costs down, of keeping uh, focusing doctors and hospitals on keeping costs down. And ultimately, that's the best way of keeping insurance prices down. Uh, yeah. We need to handle the drug company, the drug costs. Uh, President uh, Trump has been very vocal about that. This bill, ironically, zero zero uh, planks in this bill about cost control. Nothing in this bill about cost control. So if you really want to keep insurance costs down for the long term, you need cost control. And they have said, they, the Republicans, have had nothing to say about that. Zeke, those are the things I would, those are the things I would do. And there's a lot of there's a lot of sentiment in the public, I think, for those kind of changes. But that's not the direction. You know, when I went in and met with President Trump, that's the direction I advised him to go. That's not the directions the Republicans right. have chosen to go. Oh, we got to leave it there. Zeke Emanuel, when your book comes out, don't be a stranger. Ezekiel Emanuel, uh, MD, uh, and one of the authors of Obamacare. The book is Prescription for the Futures. We said he can come back on when he sells the movie rights. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Folks, what you don't see off camera is here is Tom Ricks is so fired up. We have gone from Douglas MacArthur to General Mattis in no time at all. David, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest? Yeah, he was for for a while a reporter at the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. We uh, then saw him switch to uh, military history really in real time as he chronicled the uh, the war in Iraq. Tom Ricks is the author of a new book, Churchill uh, and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom, and joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 uh, studios. I want to ask you just first of all about how this book came to be. You write about how Simon Shama has noted the relationship that these two gentlemen had. They didn't know each other uh, personally, but admired each other's uh, work. How did you decide to, to look at their two careers uh, in tandem? And in fact, not only do they not know each other, they're so different, yet the hero of 1984, Orwell's great novel, is named Winston. Uh-huh. Uh, how I came to this is after I finished my last book, The General's For my own edification, I was going back and looking at a lot of 20th century journalism, asking myself what last and what didn't. And I started with H.L. Mencken, and I thought, interesting style, totally out of date. E.B. White, good essayist, good style, irrelevant to today. 
S.J. Perlman, not funny. Um, Hemingway, going to be forgotten in a uh-huh. century. Wait a minute. I was just at Hemingway's in Paris, and the martinis are still good. <laughs> Hemingway and alcohol will be remembered. Uh, okay, thank you. <laughs> Probably his greatest legacy. Yeah. Um, and then I picked up George Orwell, mm. and it's like, wow, this is a contemporary voice. It's fresh. It feels like today. You could take an essay of Orwell's, print it in the newspaper today, and it would look like it was written for today. In fact, I think he invented the modern op-ed style. What? Uh, have you ever been body slammed by somebody you've covered? Yes, I have, <laughs> actually. Um, in Afghanistan, after the Shahi Code battle, I came back and I was interviewing the 10th Mountain Division unit battalion yeah. that had been very involved. And they were still so pumped up from combat, the sergeant major slugged me in the chest and knocked me down. There you go. Didn't expect that when I asked the question, but uh, what, what do you make? What, what should we read into what happened uh, yesterday, this Guardian reporter in Montana being body slammed reportedly by uh, the gentleman running for Congress, the Republican running for Congress? What does that say to you about the, the, the level of discourse, the role that, that you know, the role of the way that journalism is regarded right now in this country? Hitting a reporter, knocking down a reporter crosses a bright line. Uh, it's not just any citizen. Violence against any citizen is bad. Violence against a reporter actually... Uh, violates the First Amendment, freedom of the press. And I would say violence against a reporter is fundamentally un-American. Mm. This is un-American activity. And we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, I think a president who seems so comfortable with autocrats and uncomfortable with, um, right. with, with Democratic leaders is un-American. Church- Churchill and Orwell, I was just in the Churchill war rooms in Britain. Churchill had a distance from the generals. We have a president right now who seems to have an immense affection for generals, the well, modern generals. In Dexter Filkins writing in New Yorker now on Jim Madison and all that. What do you perceive of this relationship of the generals, not your book, the modern generals, to the president of the United States? Well, Trump combines affection with ignorance, which is a dangerous combination. Churchill uh, combined um, tough leadership with deep knowledge. Mm. Churchill fundamentally understood how the military worked. He, he had been overseeing the British Navy yeah. in World War yeah, I. Like FDR, yeah. he, he plunged deep into the facts of the matter. You know, I, I, I was struck by a line very early on in your book. You say that the great man theory of history is much denigrated today, but sometimes individuals matter greatly. Uh, as you wrote this book, how did that go- kind of govern the way that, that you approached the, the subject here? I mean, were, were you reluctant to do it in light of that? No, there's a real place for yeah. biography of people and key events. And while I do believe that there are large trends in history that are important to pay attention to, demographic and economic Had Churchill not been prime minister in 1940, which was really an accident of British Mm. history, World War II would have ended very differently. Had Churchill not been prime minister, chances are, we know now, that a British government would have negotiated a peace settlement with Nazi Germany, under which the Nazis were given free reign in Europe in exchange for Britain being allowed to retain its overseas empire. Mm. Churchill said no. He becomes prime minister only on May 10th, 1940. Uh, The conservatives, his own party, don't like him. They don't applaud. The the Labor Party applauds when he walks into the House of Commons for the first time as prime minister. What Churchill does in that year is so stunning in the summer of 1940. 
his great speeches are all in that year. The phrases we know, blood, sweat, and tears, yeah. uh, fight them on the beaches. Also, he leads the military in a time when they, they think the Germans are going to land. He leads the British military, and it's very well organized, and he supervises it closely, and they fight off and then, the Luftwaffe. Then, Tom, it's to dovetail Churchill and Orwell with your wonderful book, The Generals, and to bring it to President Trump. Does President Trump have a military that can support him, or are they just simply, I say this with great respect for the courage out there, the exhaustion of a multi-decade war in two fronts, Iraq and Afghanistan? Are they just exhausted right now? Yes. Um, we've asked a lot more of our current troops than, in fact, we even did of a lot of our troops in World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, in World War II, I think the longest any division was in combat was 12 months. We have people who have now had several years in combat. Uh, but the military right now is kind of the adult in the room. I'm not comfortable with having so many generals running our government, but it's a lot better than the alternative, which is a bunch of Bannonite yahoos. What is your prescription for General Mattis? He likes to be quiet. He is the quiet Marine. He hates the phrase mad dog, to be clear about it. What is your prescription for the Secretary of Defense? Mattis, I think, of all the generals, has done the best. Um, he has been low-key. He has basically run the Pentagon by himself, and he's fought off the crazies in the White House. General Kelly at Homeland Security has not done so well. I think he has um, let a very aggressive group of officers in Customs Enforcement, Immigration, and so on, Border Patrol, uh, go out and uh, do some things that reflect poor discipline. General Flynn was a disaster. He blew up on the launch pad. General McMaster, I've known since he was a major. Mm -hmm. He's now National Security Advisor. It's been sad for me to watch him over yeah. the last 10 days. Though. We're going to come back. David Gurr is going to do a solo here with Tom Riggs because I've monopolized way too much. How about this, folks? This is unbelievable. Animal Farm, which I would have guessed is 1952, was published three days after the end of World War II. David, it was so successful, their constraint on sales was they ran out of paper. Uh -huh. They literally <laughs> ran out of paper with World War II shortages. This is fabulous. Churchill and Orwell, the fight for freedom, the pictures alone, particularly the last set of pictures of the two of them smoking, their, having their tobacco at their table while they used their Remington typewriter or whatever it was to type. This is back. This, Michael Barr's the only one that understands this. You, 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 you actually had a real typewriter, right? My first resume was on a Remington typewriter. Very good. There we go. <laughs> We're with Tom Ricks. We'll continue. Churchill and Orwell. So I'm going to let David Gura bring in our esteemed guest. David, I'm just going to say he's smarter than we are. Very you true. and I are grinding it out in New York. One morning in Maine, Sal woke up. She peeked over the top of the covers. The bright sunlight made her blink. Tom Ricks has got to be smarter than us. He lives up in Maine. That's very good. Actually, uh, about one mile from the island that uh, Sal lived on. That Robert McCluskey wrote the song. And uh, I still see Sal and Jane around town. Is that right? Yeah. That is very cool. This is and Blueberries think, uh, for Sal yes, fame? And, and, and Blueberries for Sal, One Morning in Maine, all yeah. those great yeah. books. Um, and uh, they still have the same haircuts they had. <laughs> That's excellent. Very good. David, glad to have you here with us in New York in our 1130 uh, studios. It strikes me, and we were talking about... Um, President Trump's approach to the job. He's not a reader. We know that. We have Admiral James DeVritis on the show from time to time, and I'm always impressed by the depth of his knowledge, his respect for reading and for history. I've heard the same thing about General James, just Secretary James Mattis now uh, as well. Do you get the sense that the president is learning anything from them? In other words, you can quibble with having so many generals in the cabinet. What, what are some positives that can come from that, do you think? Almost none, because none. Um, I think 
it is simply too late in life for Trump to catch up with the knowledge base that you really need to, to do that job well. I think it must be so humiliating for him all day long to sit there and basically find out he is the stupidest person in the room. These are not only very bright people, very energetic people at the top of their profession, alpha males of the type he respects. They also are incredibly well-read. And I think it must be just horrible for Trump. He, all, all his life he's paid people to tell him how smart he is. All these people are basically in one way or another saying, sir, you don't understand. So there's the, the frustration of the president as a result of that. What's the frustration like for someone like General H.R. McMaster? Uh, we watched as he came out of the White House a couple of weeks ago uh, to say that something did not happen in the White House, which a few hours later the president confirmed did happen uh, in the White House. How frustrating must it be for someone like that to work within within the administration operating in that way? I think Trump destroys the souls of those around him. I think Sean Spicer's soul has evaporated entirely. I think Kellyanne Conway has lost her soul. And I think McMaster's given up a little bit of his soul. It's Shakespearean watching McMaster. This is not just any general. It's not just any smart general. McMaster literally wrote the book on the Vietnam War, Dereliction of Duty, one of the 10 best books on the Vietnam War. And its conclusion is officers, senior officers, need to speak truth to the president. And instead, McMaster has gone up there, I think, to retain his credibility with the president. And instead of protecting the country, which is the job of the national security advisor, he is protecting the president. Why has he done this? Why has he given up a little bit of his soul? And he's a very soulful man. When you speak to him, his voice thickens with emotion. Mm. He, when he gets angry, he rolls his shoulders uh -huh. to loosen his back muscles. Uh, why has he done this? I think because he thinks he's the only th person standing between uh, having a disastrous national security advisor, again, like Flynn. What's the lesson to be learned here from your book about how these two men, uh, Churchill and Orwell, approached uh, leadership? You, you look at Churchill, his upbringing, talk about the relationship he had, the lack of relationship he had with, with his father, uh, what he learned at Eton, and, and where he went from there. What can we in America in 2017 draw from, from what molded them, what made them into the leaders they were? Oddly enough, this book about Churchill and Orwell concludes with looking at Martin Luther King and his letter from Birmingham jail because it's very much in the tradition of Orwell's writing and Churchill's approach, which is, number one, have principles. Number two, don't develop opinions until you understand the facts and really work hard to get to those facts, as Churchill did delving down into the military details of World War II. And then when you have the facts, apply your principles. And I think that's a good course to watch for. And I think in the current era, what I'm particularly watching is people who, like Churchill and Orwell, are willing to criticize their own side. Churchill breaks with his own conservative party, saying, no, Nazi Germany is rearming. You cannot appease mm -hmm. them. Orwell breaks with the Stalinist left and says, no, you can't suppress the truth because it disagrees with the party line. So what I'm looking for is people who have a willingness to break with their own side, to have principles and apply them. And fortunately, in this country, we have a set of written principles mm -hmm. for how to, go, for, to operate. It's called the American Constitution, which I think is a great operating document and a great strategic document. Look for people who support the Constitution and rule of law. Listen to them. I find myself especially now interested in what anti-Trump conservatives are saying. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of people like William Crystal, Elliot Cohen, um, Charles Krauthammer, George Will, 
These are the people who I think have principles, have a loyalty to traditional conservatism, and I don't think Trump is conservative. He's a revolutionary reactionary. Those are the people I'm paying attention to right now. Tom, great to see you. Thank you very much again for coming in. He's the author of Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. Tom Ricks uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. This is an important interview, and not nearly enough time, and we will speak to him often, I'm sure. Mo Brooks is from the 5th District in Alabama, right across the north top of Alabama. He is running for Senate. Congressman, good morning. Good morning. What have you learned about the Republican Party in the last two weeks? You're in the middle of a Donnybrook of a campaign in Alabama for Jeff Sessions' seat. There's been this district, that district. How's the Republican Party doing right now? Well, I think that the national media, quite frankly, is hammering Republicans on a regular basis, and they're doing it in kind of an Alice in Wonderland um, arena. They aren't paying attention to the major challenges that America faces. Instead, they focus on uh, small things, which are big to individual uh, citizens around the United States. But by small, it's small in comparison to the debilitating insolvency and bankruptcy and the damage that will be done if we don't do something to get our out-of-control spending under control. Uh, And so I I wish the mainstream news media would talk more about Venezuela, where 75 percent of their population has had an average weight loss of 19 pounds. Uh, I mean, that's huge because they can't get enough calories Mm -hmm. and enough food to sustain their body weight. That's what happens when a a central government goes to an insolvency and bankruptcy. And that is quite clearly where the United States of America is headed if we don't do something uh, about our, our spending, our deficits uh, this year, uh, well, this past right. year, about $587 billion. And it looks like it's going to be worse uh, going forward over the next decade. Congressman Brooks, uh, I wonder if you could just tell us what the path forward here is. After the election, there was a lot of enthusiasm and expectation that a lot more would get done on Capitol Hill. Uh, we've seen the latest CBO score. We've got the White House budget. We've seen reaction from both parties that's uh, muted or dismissive of that president's budget. Uh, where do we go from here? What do you say to constituents who wonder where the action's going to be? Well, which issue do you want to talk about? Let's talk about, let's talk about the budget first. Talk let's talk about, about the, the budget. budget. Well, the budget, I think, uh, that has been put forth by Mick Mulvaney, of the um, uh, Director of Office and Management of Budget, is extraordinarily responsible in the overall sense that it is trying to prevent America from going into a debilitating insolvency and bankruptcy. Now, you can have disagreements over where the spending cuts ought to be, uh, keeping in mind that overall it's still spending more money uh, than last year. And, and to me, that's somewhat troubling. But I cannot overemphasize the danger associated <clears throat> with us continuing to rack up these hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in uh, deficits, uh, having to borrow the money because we don't have it and we can't afford to pay it back. And long term, Uh, If you have even the the smallest amount of economic sense, you understand that it's a very dangerous thing that we're doing, and it's going to be devastating to the country and to a large degree undermine what it took our ancestors more than 200 years to build. Congressman, not enough time today. We look forward to speaking to you at a greater length in Washington here. David Gurr and Tom Kinsey, thank you. To Mo Brooks of the 5th District, right at the top of Alabama. I mean, it's interesting. It's not a gerrymandered district in that sense. It's just... It's almost like a sane shape. It's almost, David, like almost a rectangle. A rarer thing, they said. It's a rare thing. Of the House Freedom Caucus joining us here on our phone lines. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.